Thank you, Mandy. How's everybody doing today? Well, like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to um, anybody who's visiting with us for the very first time. By the way, guys, you can pass those offering buckets. Uh, don't mind those guys as they help pay some bills here. So if, um, if you're a guest with us today, I, would just, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. You could have gone any place in the world today, but you're here with us, and so we're so happy uh, that you're here today. Let me also say, Joey uh, Miracle, who is here from Freedom Church, is the worship pastor down, just at Freedom Church just down the street. We're thankful that their service is at noon, which affords their pastor, who was here last week preaching, and their worship people to come over here and help us out when we, whenever we get in a pinch. So we're in a pinch this week. We called Joey up on Monday or Tuesday, and he said, what time do you need me there? And so I just... Uh, I just want you to know how, how, how much of a blessing it is that we can be in fellowship and relationship with churches that don't feel like they need to compete with us, that don't feel like they need to keep us at arm's length. And so uh, Pastor Thaddeus, who preached here last week, is one of my dearest friends, and I'm grateful for their partnership and their fellowship, and I thought Joey did a fantastic job leading us into God's presence this morning. And so some of you, if you know my story, some of you are new to this church, but some of you know my story, and so I've managed to weave my story in and out of my messages over the years. But for those of you who don't know my story, you know uh, I grew up as a preacher's kid. Um, I grew up in the church. And so that meant a lot of church services. That meant, you know, I wasn't just a church kid. I was a preacher's kid. That meant a, a pretty strict <laughs> upbringing. And so at home and at all the services that we went to, especially the youth group, they found the need to tell us over and over this one phrase, and that is that we should live holy. Anybody uh, remember being told this over and over and over? And they would weave this into sermons. They'd work it into songs. They would bake it into casual conversation with us. They wanted us to know that we should live holy. But honestly, I didn't really know, know what that meant. I had an idea of what that meant, and I even, at a certain point in my life, thought I knew what it meant, but as I got older, I realized that I had no idea whatsoever what it meant. And so when I was growing up, we were familiar with, we didn't really associate with, but we were familiar with various denominations of ch uh, churches that called themselves holiness churches. And to us, that just basically means from the outward appearance, the women in those churches didn't wear makeup, they weren't allowed to wear earrings or ear swings, as they called them. And women couldn't wear long pants. They had to wear these long skirts. And as I recall as a child, they looked absolutely miserable. They looked, no, I, I'm not saying that to joke. It is the, the, they never were smiling. Of course, you know, they weren't adorned with makeup. And they almost tried to look really dull and unhappy. And so I really was confused about what it meant to live a holy life. Really confused about this whole thing. Uh, called holiness. As I began to get older, my personality just led me to be a more straight-laced kid. And I wish I could tell you that I was just so full of the Holy Spirit that I never got in trouble, and I would just spend my time rocking in prayer with my prayer shawl over me, you know, as a teenager. That wasn't the case. Really, I was just practically looking around my life. Nobody that was acting a fool seemed to be being successful at it. Uh, my sisters would try to veer off the path, and they would always get found out. They would always get in big trouble. Nobody on my sports team seemed to be successful at getting in trouble. And so I just resigned that it would be easier and more functional 
for me to be a more straight-laced kid. But I still was a rules guy, followed the rules, and my parents did a pretty good job of helping us in, in the midst of all of the restrictions, in the midst of all the boundaries that they set on our life. I think my father did a pretty good job of helping us understand the why, why this isn't God's best for you, why you shouldn't give yourself to this and give yourself to that. And if I could just pause for a second, uh, uh, parents, because I said so, like works when you're in a pinch, but it really helps to explain to your children like why you say no or why that's not God's best for them. Uh, so I get back onto this. And so I spent a lot of my time going to church. I had made up in my mind as a young man that I was not going to have sex until I was married and by the grace of God, uh, the Lord saw me through that. I just kind of kept a low profile, didn't get in, into trouble. But my friends would often ask me in both direct and indirect ways this question. Does it really take all of that? Does it really take all of that? And maybe you, as you've interacted with your friends that don't know Jesus, or maybe your friends that claim to know Jesus but aren't really into church that much or really into faith that much, they might ask you as they see you go to service on Sunday, and then they see you go to small group again during the week, and they see you go to night of worship, and they see you serving at the food pantry, and they see you come here to prayer meetings, and they see you denying yourself and abstaining from certain things. They might have asked you directly or indirectly, does it really, does it really take all of that? I mean, does God really care about all those things? And the short answer is yes, even more so than we think. But I think that some people resist the real authentic Christian life because they've reduced holiness or God's expectations of us to a bunch of rules and a bunch of parameters and a bunch of lines that you dare not step over, or at least God hits you with this holy ruler. And so as many people have kept faith at an arm's length, or many people have come to faith and walked away because those of us that steward this might have given them an improper picture of what it means to live this life for Jesus. We might have presented a picture of no fun, strictness, and I would just go as far as to say that today that that's a poor definition of what it means to live a holy life. And the folks who are staying away from the good life as God presents to us in Scripture, because they feel like it's dull, because they feel like it's boring, because they feel like it's lifeless, don't understand true holiness at all. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is absolutely irresistible. And what Lewis is saying is that the holy life, as God sets forth, is an irresistible life. It's the good life. And so I would say to you, as I lean into this this morning, if your Christian life is funless, if your Christian life is friendless, if your Christian life is lifeless, if your Christian life is joyless, then you are doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And so as I present that to you this morning, I think it's a good way to continue the series that we've been in for the last several, several weeks, a series that we've simply been calling, Is This For Real? Uh, when we engage life and people, especially when we engage faith, we come with questions. And many of those questions try to help us get at the bottom of, can we trust this or not? 
which version of this, of all the versions that are floating around, which version of this can I hang my hat on? Which version of this is authentic? It's true at its core? That's a really good question, and we hope to ask and answer plenty of those questions throughout our preaching diet as we minister the gospel here. But is this for real? In an effort to find truth, in an effort to, to, to lean on something that's sturdy and stable, oh, is this for real? And so we've talked about a couple of different things, and we're going to continue this series by talking about the very important subject of holiness, Christian holiness. And I'm simply calling this talk this week a closer look at holiness, and the goal is to help us all understand holiness as God defines it, not anybody else. We're going to be looking this morning at a passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1. Why don't you turn there with me in your Bibles? 1 Peter chapter 1. There are Bibles, by the way, on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use those Bibles. If you don't have a Bible that's your own, that you can understand, please take those Bibles home as a gift from us to you. We'll also be projecting it on the screens. Also feel free to follow along on your phones or your mobile devices. 1 Peter chapter 1, while you find that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity I have to share your word with your people. Father, we are gathered here not to see the preacher, but to meet with you, not to hear some wise and witty words from a preacher, but to hear from you. And so, Father, as always, we ask that you would set the table this morning, and whatever you serve, Father, we will consume, whether it be the snacks or the vegetables, Lord, whatever you have for us today, we want it. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would go before us this morning, anything that would distract us, Anything that would cause us to drift off from what you want to share with us this morning, Father, I pray that you would keep us locked in on the truth of your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 13. As you might have guessed, this, re- this letter uh, was written... Uh, by Peter, and it's a letter to both Jew and Gentile believers. Some scholars suggest that this letter was likely written to newer converts, and basically what Peter is trying to help them understand is the basics of the faith. And in this particular installment, he talks about what it means to live a holy life. As God defines it, we pick this up in verse 13. So prepare your minds for action. Love how this starts. Out of the gate, he says, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Prepare your minds for action and and, and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says you must be holy because I am holy. Verse 17. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. That's important. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, and it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb 
of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Verse 21, through Christ you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters love each other deeply with all your heart. And I'll stop there. And so this is an interesting passage. It's an interesting passage. It's a helpful passage. It's a necessary passage for those of us who seek to understand what it means to live a holy life. You're all curious. So if you're all concerned about your working definition of holiness and holy living, this is a good passage. I call it a comprehensive intensive on holiness and holy living. And so what I like about this passage is from the very beginning, it defines the fact that holy living is an active lifestyle. Holy living is active. And I've said for years that if you just go with the flow of life, if you just go with the flow of your desires, if you just go with the flow of your impulses, if you let the situations of life determine your trajectory, you will always coast downstream. Always coast downstream. Your feelings will always move you to sinfulness and selfishness. The circumstances of life in this fallen and broken world will always cause you to choose yourself for your own interest over God's or others. It will always just cause you, if you just let it go, if you just don't put forth any effort, and some of you have noticed this, and some of you are here now, you will always slide down. But Peter opens this passage letting us know, prepare your mind for what? For action. Get ready to do something. And it's interesting that he said prepare your mind because anything we do with these and anything we do with these starts here and here. He just didn't start with a list of rules, a lot of do's and don'ts. He said, prepare your minds for action. Get ready to do something. Get ready to get out of that raft that has you floating down the lazy river. Get ready to get up out of that seat of slumber and indifference and inactivity. Prepare your minds and exercise self-control. And so from the very beginning, he frames holy living as active actively making choices. This is a daily regiment, and dare I say it, it's hourly, minutely, and if I can reduce it all the way down to secondly, this is secondly work. Every minute of every day, because we're always making decisions, he says, prepare your hearts, your minds for action. And as Peter frames so neatly for us what holy living and holiness means, I think this passage asks and answers two very big questions as we try to figure out what holiness means and how it relates to us. And so the first big question that this answers is, why should we live holy lives? I wish that I just had enough juice and enough authority and enough presence that you would just do what I say because I said it. But I don't think we're quite there yet, right? And some of you might come to this table, this discussion this morning like I did as a young kid. I kept here, live holy, live holy. Nobody was really telling me why. And the question is like, why should I live a holy life? What's the point of this? Well, the first 
answer that, to that question that Peter sets forth here is you should live a holy life because God is holy. Because God is holy. You can't talk about holiness. You can't talk about it, right? You can't deal with this subject comprehensively unless you start with the author and architect of all of this thing. Peter says this in verse 15, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says you must be holy because I am holy. So let's talk about God's holiness for a moment, and then we'll get into what it means for us to be holy. The primary meaning of holy in this text and in other relevant texts just simply means separate. Separate, other, apart. It comes from the ancient word that means to cut. One scholar even said to translate this perfectly as uh, the ancient world would understand it when they were using the original word, it, a cut above the rest. Some of you have heard that phrase. If something is unique, if something is special, if something is altogether other, it's set apart, it's in a class of its own, it's, as we say in America, it's a cut above the rest. And so this is, in essence, what God's holiness means, that he's altogether other, separate, different from us. He is not only holy, but he is uniquely holy to the point that nothing and no one, especially no other gods or deities, can compare to him. And so as such, this definition and understanding of holiness means that he is exalted and worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. In other words, you ain't going to find, as the old church said, you ain't going to find nobody like the Lord. You ain't going to find nobody like him. He's altogether holy. In Exodus 15, verse 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? Who is like you? And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, No one is holy like the Lord there is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. If you go through the scriptures, many people proclaim the holiness of God. And this is what they mean. And so here's the kicker at the outset of this discussion on holiness. If you can't square away in your heart that this is who God is, that he's not one of your buddies, that he's not one of your pals, that he's just not one flavor in the parlor of deities that you could choose from on any given day, if you don't square away in your heart at the outset of this conversation, at the outset of your life of faith, that God is altogether other, holy, worthy, deserving of complete devotion because there ain't nobody else like him, you're going to have a problem with faith. You're going to have problem in your relationships. If you're trying to do this right, you're going to have a problem with morality. You're going to have a problem understanding your purpose and destiny. You are going to have a problem with God if you haven't squared away that he is holy by his terms and by his definition. So why do we live a holy life? Scripture tells us because God is holy. The second reason we live a holy life is because we are his. We are his. And while, you, while you're squaring away the reality of God's holiness, if you don't by chance square away the reality that he demands that you be holy, that you be by de definition devoted to this deity, that there's no other like it, 
that you be altogether separate and set apart by comparison to the world and this secular culture that we live in, if you don't find yourself understanding that there's a need to be consecrated, designated, earmarked for the master's use, then you will always have a problem. You will always have a problem living this life the right way. There'll always be this tug of war. You'll always be asking, so, so how close to the edge can I get? What can't I do? What if I just did it once? What if I just dip my toe in? Is it really that bad? You'll always be wrestling with this if you don't square away this fact that God demands that we should be holy because he is, because we belong to him. Peter says this in verse 18, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. What is Peter saying? God has bought and paid for you. And so don't think about this in, in an ordinary, broke down, busted slave situation where you have been taken uh, and taken advantage of. Rather, God has purchased you out of something. He purchased you out of slavery, out of a miserable life, pulled you out of the muck and the mire and brought you into a glorious destiny and future. And whenever we want to stray and do our own thing, God said, I, I, you can, don't, don't forget I paid for you. Don't forget that you are mine. He ransomed you. And so the scriptures tell us that we are to be holy because God is holy. And if you would think of this in terms of parents, my parents used to always say to us, you, you belong to me. Whenever we would suggest that maybe we should get to do something that so-and-so's parents let them do, which was, by the way, a cardinal sin. You didn't do that too often. My mama would say, you belong to me. And every now and then, my sister, who's one year older than me, uh, would, would get a little sassy and she would get a little beside herself because she, she's kind of in the middle, not to be stereotypical. <laughs> and she would say, well, can't we do this? And I, I thought about editing this quote from my mother, but I want you to get the real essence of what my mother would say when either of us would get beside of ourselves and question why we can't do what somebody else do. My mom would say, you came out of my behind. <laughs> and as a kid, you listen to that, you know, Kind of gross. <laughs> not to mention, not particularly accurate, but she was trying to say that you are from me, that you are of me, that I am responsible for you. And if you eat my food, sit your legs under my table, warm yourself around my heat, you belong to me, and your life is at, you know, my dictates. And so in the same way, the Lord says, since you've been ransomed, since I've purchased you into this good life, you are of me, you are from me, you belong to me. And so therefore, make sure you distinguish yourselves from the world around you. Make sure you distinguish yourself, that you're set apart, that you are consecrated, and that you live Accordingly, you belong to me. Be holy, God says, because I am holy. Be holy, the Lord says, because you belong to me. You belong to me. And so that's the first big question. Why should we live a holy life? The second big question, I think it's probably a bigger question for those of us who are new to this or those who have gotten the wrong idea about holiness, 
The second question is, what does holiness look like? What does holiness look like? In other words, give me a picture of what this is supposed to look like. Give me a composite of what uh, this is supposed to look like. Paint a picture for me where I think Peter does a fantastic job. Verse 13, he says, so prepare your minds for action. I already told you, get ready for some hard work. It's going to be like swimming upstream until you get started. Put your hope in the gracious salvation that will come when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Get this, verse 17. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. In other words, your actions matter. Your decisions matter. So you must live in what? Reverent fear. You must live in what? Reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. We'll get to the temporary residents in a minute, but I want to deal for the moment with the reverent fear. In a broad sense, you want to get a picture of what the holy life looks like, what it means to be different, what it means to be set apart, what it means to be sequestered for the master's use. Reverent fear sums it up quite well. And so I'm always drawn, when I see fear in Scripture, I'm always drawn to this concept of wisdom that we talk about so often. Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. We've been defining wisdom over the years as skill in living. Skilled in living. That is, that God, who, who is the architect of our lives, who, who figured out from soup to nuts what this life should be about. He's figured out the boundaries. He's figured out all the ins and outs. And what we should do as people who want to live this life well, we should seek his wisdom, or we should seek the manual, we should seek the architect of this life so that we might live this life well. And so what it means to seek wisdom means to seek God's plan for this life so that we can be wise or we can be skilled at living life. You show me somebody who is foolish, which in Scripture, excuse me, is the opposite of being wise, I will show you somebody who does not have reverent fear of the Lord. You show me somebody who is consistently living a foolish life, I will show you someone, almost without exception, who does not fear the Lord. And so I think in times past, we've tried to file the hard edge off of this word fear. And we've tried to say things like, well, this fear doesn't mean that you're actually kind of scared. It means like humble submission. It means that you really respect and revere God. And it, it, it kind of means that. But it also means in a, in a grand sense that we fear the Lord. That our hearts quake a little bit when we think of his greatness when we think of his vastness, when we think of God's disposition toward the sin that he hates, that so easily resides in us, we, we quake a little bit when we think of our sinfulness and God's holiness. It's reverent fear. Reverent fear. Every now and then I catch somebody, catch a kid running around the church and climbing up on something. And my go-through thing, if they don't listen the first time when I tell them to stop, I say something like, you want me to go get your daddy? Now, if they're like me, that's enough to straighten them right up. But some of them are like, go get them. <laughs> He's over there. Get him the sandwich. Go get him. You want me to go get him? 
I ain't reverent fear, man. Thinking as I'm preparing this this week about Miss Valentine Reeves, my high school honors English teacher. And Miss Reeves was a character, I actually ran into her a couple years ago. She lives out in the South Suburbs. And Miss Reeves, and again, I was a straight, straight lay student, didn't get in a whole lot of trouble. Every now and then, you know, I was kind of cracked jokes with the ladies, you know, they were into me in high school. And I would try to, you know, <laughs> true. And then, you know, want to be cute and try to be cool and make crack jokes. And, oh, you're just so funny, you know. And so Miss Reeves would look back down the row and she would say, Eugene, that's my full name, Eugene. She'd say, Eugene, do I need to call the reverend? <laughs> now, the rest of the class, some of them were wild. She had no trump card on them because they could care less about somebody calling home. On the other hand, one of the worst things that can happen to somebody whose last name was Allison is that that phone would ring and it would be your teacher. And so all Miss Reeves knew, the very threat, just the mention of the good reverend's name would have me sitting up in my seat because I did not want to deal with Big Gene Allison. Didn't want to deal with him on a discipline tip. And she knew that I had a reverent fear for him, and so that would stop me in my tracks. And so this is the beginning of what it means to live a holy life. If somebody's got to catch up to you every day and remind you of the rules, catch up to you and remind you of God's standard, of his holiness, uh, then we're just going to be chasing you around all day. But what we try to do as we preach about God's standard and His holiness is to install in your heart, to knead into the dough of your life a reverent fear of God. The psalmist says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against. What are you saying? God, your standard, your essence, an understanding of who you are, have I worked into my heart so that I might not sin against you, a reverent fear. You don't have to be smart to have a reverent fear. You don't have to be all that intelligent. You don't have to have complex thinking skills. We said this a couple of weeks ago. The Christian life boils down to obedience. God just says, do what I say. Do what I say. If you're new to faith and you haven't worked this out so that it's instinct, do what I say. You've been a seasoned Christian, and this is well-worn paths of righteousness. God still expects you to do what he says. Reverent fear gives way to obedience. This is what holiness looks like. But the second part of that, he says, so you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as what? Temporary residence. we got to deal with that. we got to unpack that. And so the second aspect of what holiness looks like, a holy life looks like, is that we think in terms of eternity. In other words, we have an eternal focus and not an earthly one. Now, that's easy to misunderstand. And that doesn't mean that we just sort of walk around with these robes, you know, that have the thing, and we just walk around and just, I wonder what kind of gold the heavenly streets are made of. And I wonder what St. Peter would say to me as I darken the gate. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that we live we choose, we love, we plan in light of eternity and not in light of our temporal, earthly, fleeting urges. 
that we plan our life and our future. We hinge our relationships and how we spend money. We manage our sexual ethic in light of not the present circumstances and my current emotions, but rather I view all of these things in light of eternity. Paul says this is Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised to new life in Christ. These guys are always pointing us back. Since you've been, because you've been purchased, since God loves you, since he ransomed you, do this. Set your sights, he says, on the realities of heaven. Where Christ sits in a place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. And again, that's easy to misunderstand, but he's saying, think about eternity. And oh, what some of you would give for a time machine that would take you back in time and have you make decisions on the basis of eternity rather than what you were feeling in the moment. Oh, what we would do to be able to go back. Now, God has redeemed a lot of those poor decisions, but some of you, it's, those decisions have changed the entire trajectory of your life. And while God is redemptive and the salvific work of the cross makes all things new, that's what he's good at, fixing broken things, but oh, to go back and to weigh those decisions and to weigh those choices in light of eternity, will this matter tomorrow? Some of us might have a few less children, as, as much of a blessing as they are. Some of us might have stayed out of trouble. We might not have done that stint prison that we did. Others of us might not have this soul tied to a man or a woman that we've given ourselves to because we were making decisions based on like what we were doing in the moment. Some of us have things on our record and things that are, you know, forever attached to us because we made a decision about my current emotions, based on my current feelings, based on what he said and what she said, and what we would have done if we could do it over and say, God, what do you think about this? Is this going to matter in five years? It's going to matter in 10 years. It's going to matter when I stand before you and give an account of how I live. Is this going to matter? And some of you right now are faced with, like, life-altering decisions. And when you consider the basis on which you're making those decisions, God has nothing to do with it. Like, his eternal plan and his purpose, it hasn't even been factored into the equation. If it's a career thing, it's about money. If it's something, it's like, I like this house. It's like, uh, you know, I'm tired of this. I need to change the pace. Or this person is really cute. They've got a great body. They treat me well. No, no. Have, you, have you filtered it through the sieve of eternity? And so this is what the holy life looks like. Fear and reverence for God. An eternal focus that, by the way, and some of you have figured this out already, doesn't make sense to the world around you. I mean, half Christians will be telling you, well, just do what makes you happy. Half the people in this room might not, if asked, tell you to get on your knees and ask God uh, b before you make a decision. Or they might say, well, whoa, 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 are you happy? Does, does he make you feel good? Well, you're not hurting anybody, are you? Oh, the 
the, the holy life. I'm not my own. I'm his. I'm, I, I, my life is borrowed. It's not my own. How does this square in light of eternity? Will the master, when I stand before him, and say, my man, way to go. It has an eternal focus. But let's go deeper, shall we? So in an effort to be more specific in answering this question, what does wholeness look like? Consider what I believe to be the two major considerations for those who wish to live holy lives. Two things, and I'll get out of your way this morning. The first consideration is morality and ethics. Now let me just say that I think that we have a tendency as church people to either swing too far to one edge of this or in our current cultural context to swing too far to the other side of this. That is to say that sometimes we can just get nutty about morality and ethics and reduce holiness to exclusively, you know, following the rules, staying within the foul lines, so to speak. And on the other hand, we can get on the other wacky end of the spectrum and just be swept away by the permissiveness of the culture that we live in, such that the truth of God's word that's supposed to arrest your heart when you encounter it, and the wiles of the enemy that's supposed to offend your senses should you encounter it, does nothing to you. Because our new standard has become something other than the word of God. And so I'm here to tell you that a strong arm of holiness deals directly with our morality and ethics as defined by God himself. I'll say that again. One of the strong arms of holiness deals directly with morality and ethics as defined by God in Holy Scripture. Can't get away from this. At least you shouldn't. And so when God commands us to be holy, to be set apart. He expects us to, to, to be, in, in, in a really comprehensive sense, distinct from the world around us. So a few weeks ago when we asked and answered the question, what difference does faith make? That's a legitimate question because many people just don't see a difference in the professing Christian world and those who don't live lives of faith at all. We watch the same movies, they're having just as much sex. Uh, they just have probably little regard for their neighbors and justice, have troublesome politics. And so to the casual outsider, they're like, what, what's the difference? What's the difference? Peter says this in verse 14, so you must live as God's obedient, as that word again, obedient children. He continues, don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. And so what is Peter saying? He's saying that things are different now. Things are different now. And some of you have come to faith and, and, and have just been going along your life. You haven't changed much. And some of you, this is like an honest mistake of yours because you're sitting in some church that's trying to be hip. You're sitting in some church and you're listening to some preacher that's trying to be your buddy and he's trying to file the hard edge off of God's standard. And you could sit in a church for a year and not hear a sermon on God's idea of a, of a Christ-centered sexual ethic. 
You can sit in church a whole year and not hear uh, God's heart on the poor and God's heart on how you're supposed to treat somebody else who has a different political viewpoint than you. You can sit in church a whole year and not hear the nitty-gritty about integrity and what it means to be the same person no matter where you go, no matter who you're with. And so some of us haven't moved on the spectrum of maturity because we haven't been in a place where we've been hearing a word of God that arrests our desire to stay where we are. And I would that you would say when you come to this church, after just one week, that preacher is teaching the word. They preach good news over there, but I got caught a few times just in the intro of his sermon because that's what the word of God does. Word of God calls us higher. Peter said at the beginning of this, get ready to work. Stretch your mind, get loose, because if you're going to engage this for real, it's going to cost you something. If you're going to engage this for real, it's go- you have to lay some things down, some things that you really love, some things that you really grown attached to. You have to lay some things down if you're going to be distinct. World lived for itself. We, as citizens of the kingdom, we live to please God through loving him and through loving others. And so there's some rules to this, and I want to jog through some of the parameters. And one of the, one of the obvious ones that uh, we, we talk about a lot is just uh, has coming into the kingdom, living a holy life, being attached to a holy God, has it in any way changed your idea of your sexual ethic? As I understand Scripture... God prohibits all sex and lust outside of heterosexual marriage. I didn't write it. I'm reading it to you. I'm relaying it to you. God prohibits all sex and lust outside of heterosexual marriage. That's what the scriptures say. Have you wrestled with that? Has that become your standard? Has that become the measuring state? And some of you wouldn't ask me some of the questions that you ask. I don't mind you asking me questions, by the way, especially if you don't know the answer. But I'm saying if, if you stake that in the center of your sexual ethic, it would answer half the questions that I get asked about what's too far, can we do this? God prohibits all sex and lust outside of marriage. Is that your standard? Is that just, is that just a given for you? And if you take issue with that statement, are you wrestling with it? Are you wrestling with the Scriptures to see if it really says that? Are you searching the Scriptures? Are you Googling it? Are you trying to figure out, God, I just, I so want to be smack dab in the middle of your standard on this. Uh, This doesn't score with me. This rubs me the wrong way. Maybe it's, you know, God's standard for, you know, when we should engage in sexual contact with somebody. Maybe it's the whole sexual orientation, gay, lesbian lifestyle. Maybe you, that, that, that files against some of your sensibilities. Are you wrestling with it? Or have you just said, well, I don't, I don't agree with that. That seems kind of mean. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. We love each other. Oh, we're going to get married. Oh, that, that seems a little harsh. Are you wrestling with it? God's standard for integrity and truth-telling, is it your standard? Or do you feel like, you know what? In 
this situation, if I just, you know, if it's going to hurt somebody's feelings, I can just, you know, fudge the truth. If it's best for them, I can just lie. I mean, I really, I really am owed this, and they really didn't give me that. And so if I just take this little thing here, if you, you, you're working, you find yourself working and doing some gymnastics to make a lack of integrity, you know, okay. Or is God's standard for truth-telling and integrity, is it your standard? And maybe you fall short of that, but you don't do so with a clear conscience. You don't do so with indifference. Well, well next time. I'll, I'll get it next time. More and more I'm concerned with what it means for me to be holy and to take care of my body. And I say that as a husky preacher who's about 20 pounds less husky than I was in January because the Lord has rearrested me on this. And look at Pastor David over there. He's about 25 pounds lighter than he was in January just because we, you know, have been on each other to be holy with our bodies. It's God's standard, your standard. It hasn't been the case for me for many, many years, but I'm trying with the help of the Lord and others. What about how we care for one another, the ethics, how you live your life? It really, really matters. There's rules to this. And woe unto those who try to blow past or redefine God's rules. But there's a method to this, Matt. There's, there's reasoning for this. And I think it boils down to a word that I use often, and that word is this, capacity, Right? It can seem like God's rules are arbitrary. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't fill your life with this. Don't fill your life with that. And you hear the preacher challenging you on the music that you listen to and the, the, the movies that you watch and the media that you consume. And it comes back to capacity because this all makes sense. We are finite human beings, finite. That means that filling us will at some point cause us to lose Space, right? And so what holiness means, in essence, is that you are to be completely available for the master's use. Completely available for the things that he wants to fill your container with. And so when you bring competing things into your life, when you attach yourself to people and you develop soul ties and you bring things into your space, you have less space you're less available for what God has put you here for. And so whether or not you believe that God has a person planned out for you that you're supposed to marry, I think God has a whole list of people who we're not supposed to marry. A whole list of people who would just completely derail our life. And so you said, well, no, I'm young, I'm a teenager. I can just flirt around with this thing. I can just give my heart to this person. And maybe in my 20s and 30s, I can settle down. No, 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 no. Those people stay with you. They stay with you. Those relationships stay with you. You don't believe me? Get a whiff of some perfume that, just, that she used to wear. Or, or your song that used to be your song. Just come on the radio and take you back to that moment. Good, bad, or ugly, you've made a choice, 
and you filled your life in some small part with that person, and that may not be a big deal, but imagine years of accumulating things, filling your life with stuff that God never meant for you to contain. Images, whether you're into, you know, just struggling with an addiction with pornography, and images that you've just, that just, that just are stored on your hard drive now. Relationships, bad choices, it's a capacity issue. How are you going to be available to God? Some of us aren't available right now because you just don't have any more hands. We don't have any more pockets. We're full. And so it's not that God's just this tyrant. What rule can I think of today? What, what, what thing could I, could I disallow today? No, God says, I am the architect of the good life. I know what's nutritious and I know all the empty calories. And some of you, your problem today, as it relates to ethics and morality, is you've been snacking your whole life. And you're just not hungry. You're not hungry, you're full. I mean, it sounds good, but I just don't have any space. I already ate, you know, three bags of Cheetos. I mean, five-course meal that the Lord has prepared you like, I just... And so what holiness demands we come to faith is we empty our life out again. We empty our life out again. Everything else goes, everything goes back to the drawing board. Everything, God, is this okay? Should I be listening to this? God, is this person, is this person less than your best for me? Whether it be a romantic relationship or just somebody who's going to be in your circle. God, is this your best for me? I know I'm of limited capacity and I dare not fill my life with something that's going to take up space that you intended for something else. Is this okay? Lord, I know I'm saved. I know I'm sanctified. But, but, but still, is this music, is this something that's adding to my life? Is this movie, is this, going to, is this movie going to corrupt me in any way? It's just like, it seems tedious. It's like, you're like, it doesn't take all that. But ask somebody who's living the good life. Ask them to peel back the curtain, you know, or the back room of their life and see the mechanisms and the things that they've installed in their life so they might not sin against the Lord. Think about how they've drawn the foul lines of their life even further than what God has ordained just so they don't step over Think about how they're indifferent to the taunts of people who know nothing of God's standard, who know nothing of his truth, because they know that this stuff works. They work, and they teach it to their kids, and they insist that it's written on the doors and the front lots of their eyes just so that they, it's everywhere in their life because this stuff works. Morality and ethics. And the second, the second thing as we go deeper here is just we, we, we can't get away from purpose. We can't get away from purpose. And I'll admit, before entering this week, I, I didn't think of holiness in terms of purpose. If I'm honest, I would have thought of it in terms of the do's and don'ts, the rules and restrictions, uh, uh, not in a wacky way, but just in, a, in a, my understanding of holiness but, but I was listening to something on YouTube and it just sort of sparked something within me that what if we thought about holiness in a broader sense than morality and ethics? 
what we thought about this whole idea of capacity, and we paired that with the idea that God made you for something. We've been talking for the last couple of years. I told you a couple of years ago, we realized that we were talking about God and God and God and helping you get acquainted with God and Jesus, but we weren't teaching you about yourself, your identity in him. And so we've been drilling down and baking it into almost every sermon, this whole idea that you are not a mistake, that God created you with a purpose, that he designated you for something, right? And so if we think of what it means to be holy, uh, what it means to be set apart, as God has specifically, meticulously, strategically purposed you to do something else, then you are to be set apart not just to, to, to obey the rules, not just to hold up the standard of God, but you are to be available to do what God specifically put you here to do. So in thinking of it that way, this goes beyond keeping the rules and keeping out of sin. This means, am I set apart for what God put me here for. And some of you got the rules. You got all the rules. It's easy for you to keep the rules. That's just your personality. You've been in church your whole life, but you haven't given yourself. You haven't designated yourself. You haven't saved space in your life. You aren't holy to the fact that God has you here for something specific. There are people that he's calling you to minister to. There are gifts that he wants you to bless the body with, and you haven't gotten busy doing those things. And in essence, you haven't really been living a holy life. You haven't really set yourself apart to do what God has called you to do because you've been just satisfied with keeping the rules. Satisfied with just not stepping over the line. But you haven't advanced in the kingdom. You haven't shown up and been counted in the places and spaces where God has called you to make an impact, this is also holy living, purpose, calling, destiny. Peter says in verse 15, but now you must live holy in everything that you do. Zoom in on that. That means your work. That means your vocation, vocation, not vacation, your vo vocation. And even on your vacation, that means how you're raising your kids. That means how you relate to your spouse. That means your dating relationships. Students, that means how you engage your studies or whether or not you take them seriously. In everything you do, you must be holy. Why? Because for every person in this room, God has called you and purposed you to do something something, and you're not a mistake. And some of you take comfort in that, but others of you, that kind of puts you on the hook now. Because if you're an orphan, nobody's waiting for you to come home. Nobody's asking, like, where you've been. Nobody's checking your cell phone. You can just kind of do whatever you want. And as sad as the orphan life is, you just, you're not accountable. You can just go and come as you've been. But when you belong to somebody, somebody's checking for you. You're supposed to be someplace. Why aren't you there? I, I created you, God says, for this purpose. Why aren't you studying this? Why aren't you going deeper in this? Why haven't you been prepared for this? I, I, I created you for a purpose. And so we take a deeper look at holiness. Of course, it means morality. Of course, it means following the rules. But some of us, we have to explore this other aspect. Because some of us, as, as, as good 
as we are and as much as we follow the rules, we're not where God has called us to be. We're not where God has called us to be. And so if you are a student and God's called you to be holy and set apart, that's a season of your life, and then it's sinful to squander your education. It's sinful to miss out on opportunity to learn and to grow in that space. You're married, it's sinful to not be available and to be sequestered and devoted to your spouse. God's a family man. This is part of what it means. This is part of your ministry. That's your first ministry. And so if you skip out on being devoted to your family, are you living a holy life? Are you available for the master's use? Specific to the purpose that he's given you? And some of you, God has called you to do things in your various workplaces. He's placed you as a teacher. God needs you to show up and be a great teacher because that's what he's called you to do. Some of you are police officers. God's called you to be great police officers. You police officers great police officers, great teachers. If you're digging ditches on the side of the road, God has called you to do that to the fullest because that's what he's called you to do. And so wherever you are on the spectrum of holiness today, I think we all need some work here. But I want you to ask yourself some difficult questions here as we land this thing. And what area, what realm of holiness and holy living is God challenging you to come up? Some of you are here today And when you think about the whole morality thing and the whole ethics thing, there's a particular area of your life, a particular area of your life that the Lord has just kind of assaulted this morning. And it might even be something that I didn't specifically name. It's just something that you know, you know, something about what I've said has just dealt with the Holy Spirit that's already in you, and you feel like God is just putting his finger on that. Maybe it's your sexual ethic. Maybe it's a life of integrity in some sphere of your life. Maybe it's how you relate to your body and how you've been living a holy lifestyle, or not been living a holy lifestyle as it relates to your temple, your body. And the list can go on and on and on. And some of you would just say, you know, the Lord has just put his finger on that. He's dealing with that today. Others of you would just say, you know what, I'm good in that area, but I'm just kind of taking it easy in life. Maybe you figured out a way to cut corners. Rather than getting good at what you do and being excellent at what you do, you've mastered how to just, I don't even know the, uh, uh, you've mastered how to BS. You've mastered just how to do just enough. Maybe with your job, people think that you're awesome and they think you're incredible and you get awards, but you know you're giving a third of the effort. You're just winging it. You're not prepared. Maybe you're being called into deeper levels of study and ministry or music, and you just have, you're just winging it, and you're not completely sequestered in that particular discipline. And you say, you know what? Nobody, may, nobody might know it, but, but God knows that I know that God is calling me to be wholly devoted as it relates to what he's called me to do. Some of you are there today. 